You're listening to Tom's Talk Time, a podcast where real people sit down to tell their real stories. It's Tom's Talk Time with your host, Tom Marlowe. Hello, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Tom's Talk Time. Joining me today is Ryan from Hit 92.9's breakfast program, Heidi, Xavier and Ryan. I met Ryan earlier this year when I was a finalist in their search for a London reporter for the Royal Wedding and he's got a great story. He's a fantastic guy with a lot of talent on air, but he's got a great story off air. He was adopted and a video searching for his birth mother went viral. In this episode, we talk about what went into that video, how he reconnected with his birth father and his message to other adopted families. I hope you like it. I had a lot of fun recording it. Make sure you check out all the other episodes that are available. They're all sitting there. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. My name's Ryan. I work at Hit 92.9 on The Breakfast Show and describe myself professionally or personally. Bit of both, I reckon. <laughs> um, whew, I don't even know where to start. How would you describe me? If Very... you said I've got a guy coming in from podcast and they say, who is he? I reckon I'd say he's a really creative guy, really fun and yeah. really interesting, like it, more more than just a... I didn't ask you that to be fishing for compliments, but it's <laughs> it's panned out that way. So I agree with everything. <laughs> well, that yeah. that is very good. As you mentioned, Ryan, you are part of a breakfast program here yep. in Perth, mm-hmm. Heidi, Xavier and Ryan. That's where a lot of people would know you from. But what some people might be surprised to know is that you were a professional volleyball player. Yeah, well, two things. People are surprised to know that I'm a professional volleyballer, or was. And the other thing is they're surprised to know that there's such thing as a professional volleyballer. Because in Australia, it's pretty rare. In Europe, it's like football, basketball, volleyball, and same as South America. So there's a lot of professional athletes. But in Australia, there's not many. So you have to either travel over there or not get paid, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, right. But yeah, so, I played a season in US college, like in the college system. Volleyball's huge in the US. And then I played a season in Malaysia, and I played in French Polynesia, and I played in Serbia as well. That's yeah. like the most random countries too. Yeah. To be kind of doing that. That's cool. Yeah, although all different reasons. The Malaysian league was really weird and crazy, and some of the courts are like, they were indoors, but they kind of would be missing a wall because it like just to let air in and stuff. So you had these right. weird stadiums that would have like a breeze, even though it's indoor volleyball and all the people there with their drums and it's crazy like a carnival. So you could barely hear your own teammates, which didn't affect me that much because I didn't speak Malay. <laughs> so, but that was fun. French Polynesia was the same. It's like a tropical island and they're there with their drums and they're singing and dancing. So when Australia plays against French Polynesia in French Polynesia, when they score, it's like a carnival. And when you score, it's dead silent. So the ball hits the ground, you're like, woo! Okay. Got that. <laughs> yeah. So you played, obviously, at a professional level. What, yep. What's the sort of training and that sort of thing that goes into it? Um, well, I obviously weighed significantly less than I do now. <laughs> um, so about 15 kilos ago. Because I'm not that tall, training is jumping and just fitness. Because as you can imagine, when you get deep into the fifth set, Someone who's seven foot one is still seven foot one. But if you're relying on your jump, it's not about how high you can jump one time. It's how high you can be jumping for over two hours. So for me, a lot of jumping and training. And then like when I was in the States, it'd be two fitness sessions and a day and then alternating between like a skill session and then like a team training as well. So it'd be like a pretty full-time job in America. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Do you miss playing or do you still play socially? No, I've had three shoulder reconstructions. You can see that scar just there. This finger's fake. 
Um, and I've got a fake hip as well. So I, I'm <laughs> so definitely, you've had your time. Yeah, I'm definitely not still playing. Uh, I don't miss the training because you kind of always, you're always a bit sore. Oh, a bit of a sore finger, a bit of a sore ankle. You're always a bit sore. But you do miss having, it sounds really lame and cheesy, but just having teammates. When you have like a common goal, like we're going to do this and we're going to play like that and we're going to win this championship. It's really satisfying to do that with a bunch of people. And then you can win and celebrate and, you know, you're all trained together. In the US, you live together. So it's a pretty team environment. So when you, and my whole life I played sports. So when I finished, when I was like 24, 25, you're suddenly like, oh, I'm just like one person. I'm, you don't just have this built-in teammates. And when you travel and you've got teammates, that's the easiest friend you'll ever find because you kind of have to be friends. Like, Ryan, this is your new team. Hey, guys, what's up? Cool, let's go to training. And then we go out for dinner and suddenly you're a part of a friendship group. Whereas when you move somewhere for work now, if we move to London for radio you you don't know anyone that's so, very true yeah yeah i miss having teammates and stuff yeah i described you before as creative yeah you studied finance finance the least creative thing ever oh yeah well yeah it's pretty uncreative stereotypically you're not somebody that looks like you would fit <laughs> into that world so what yeah. what was that like i just find find economics interesting like some people find politics interesting like money makes the world go around so i'm it's not wasn't about being rich but i was just curious to when money gets invested here and what the results of that is and how countries thrive or die on different industries. I found it interesting, so I studied it. The thing they don't say in university is that when you go and get a job, it's really boring. It's really boring. And it's such a Gen Y thing, but in uni, you're like, so here's how the CEO makes big decisions about money. But the reality is you get a job and they're like, cool, here's a bunch of paper. Can you staple them together and put them in order so we can send it to the ATO? And you just... Yeah, yeah. So the... Obviously, it'd be more fun when you're a boss or making decisions, but when you're at the bottom end of a, a huge firm or a huge bank, it's pretty boring. So I left because I was like the class clown of the bank, if that makes sense. So I used to come in and be like, guys, you'll never guess what just happened on the train. There was, you know, and tell these stories. And my boss once said, Ryan, this is not a place of fun and stories. If you want to go tell stories, go get a job in radio. So I did. <laughs> That's amazing. And yeah. do you know what's even better about that? Yeah. Is that you actually did. Because oh, so yeah, many people good. get told, oh, just go and do that. But they don't do it. Yeah. They stay there. But you've done it. Well, I, was, oh, I wasn't like awesome at it, but I was okay at the job. And what people see, if they see you laughing in the office, they assume you're not doing anything. So I'd often have these shots like, Ryan, you, you're laughing and mucking around. And I'm like, oh, well, I've, I've done my work. Like, if, is there something wrong? Like, no, no, there's no problem with your work. It's just everyone else is working hard and they see you kind of goofing around. It's not really fair. I was like, what do you mean it's not fair? Like, just because I'm having a good time. Do you want me to frown and just pretend that I'm stressed? And like, they didn't say yes, but they didn't say no either. So I think it was six weeks after he said that, I came back in with the like my piece of paper, my resignation letter. And you can imagine the smugness. <laughs> just being like, hey, you know how you say go get a radio job? <laughs> There's my letter. I got one. Bye. That's great. So yeah. were you sort of dabbling in radio while you were still in that industry yeah what were you doing to get there i came second in a competition much like yourself where <laughs> i know those feelings yeah. <laughs> so uh a guy who was doing breakfast radio in melbourne was going to the tour de france for a week and his name was matt and he worked with joe and matt was having a week off so they had this thing was called like the you and joe show so the whole thing was like matt's away so we're going to get a listener to fill in for a week and blah 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 and i came second in that as you know, that when you're a finalist, you do all the challenges and you're in there and you're, you're competing and, you know, you're just looking around and you go, oh, this looks like a bit of fun. Like, and, and I'm a curious person. So instead of just rocking up and doing what I was told, you know, I'd hang out with the producers and be like, so what are you doing? What's that button do? Like, what's this do? And so I just sort of hung around and got a job on the street team, I think, afterwards. I also made a short film, 
with a friend who was a filmmaker. So I knew nothing about film, but I like wrote a story based on some of my stories. And then he patched together all those stories and made a short film. And between the short film and working on a street team and some community radio, like I just did bits and pieces like anyone else would do whilst I was studying finance. And then I just thought, well, when a full-time job comes up, I'll, I'll take it. And one did, so off I went. And I've still got my job waiting for me at Picture Partners. They just said, oh. <laughs> and I was the same. I was like, oh, I might go try this for six months, see if I like it. But the reality is I'll probably come back. And they just said, yep. As much as I tell that story about how I was like, see ya. HR were actually lovely. They're like, if you know, if you've got interest, go explore them. If you want to come back, just give us a call. We'll, we'll find a job for you. And thankfully, I still haven't called. <laughs> <laughs> it is good that, that HR and, and the company were supportive of that. Yep. Your radio job has let you travel right across the world or, yep. and, and the country, especially yep. in regional areas. Yep. What's that been like, setting up home and then packing up and starting again? It's hard. It's real hard. Although I'm like a bit of an introvert in that I like my alone time and I, my ideas come from when I'm by myself and I can have time to think and process. So for me, being alone isn't a huge deal. For other people moving to somewhere where you know not a single person it's really daunting and i probably don't appreciate how hard that would be for some people but for me it's not as hard it's probably easier for guys who like me are kind of into sport a little bit because it's pretty easy to just go play local footy in fourth division and just turn up and go to training and even if you don't really want to play or love footy it's just a way to meet some other blokes you know it's a bit harder, like I said, if you're not in sport. But for me, living in share houses, that's an easy way to make friends. Sports teams are easy way to make friends. And then, I mean, you've been to Hot FM in Bunbury, right? Like no one's from Bunbury. Yeah, so yeah. So the reality it. is is you, you have to hang out with each other. And some of my best friends now are people who I've met in the regional stations who you end up living with them, you spend all day with them, you spend all weekend with them. So you become pretty good friends pretty quick. So. What about the in terms of the work and the content? Living yeah. in those regional areas, it's such a different experience yeah. than, than living in a big city. Yeah. What was that like? When I went to Musselbrook, which is this mining town, and nothing happens. And, you know, the 101 is you, you watch the news, you read the papers, you get a vibe of what's happening, and then, you know, you give it a twist or an angle or write some jokes about it. But when nothing's happening, it's it's a real blank piece of paper. When you've got three hours a day to fill of content, you're like, whew. This is going to be hard work um, and you don't really have any help and support, but it's, I know it just forces you to get creative. You're not creative because you want to have a new twist. You're creative because you're like, holy shit, I've got to three fill out three, fill three hours of radio today. So you kind of have to force it. And then when you come into the city and you've got a lot happening and you've got a lot of help, you've created a habit out of creating ideas. So it's good in that sense later, but it sucks at the time. Yeah. And yeah. It, you know, if only like people in those situations, if they could just see, what it's doing and the future, you know, yeah. the skills that they're getting, it's good because they they have to do all sorts of things. Yeah. But I can imagine it, it is hard at the time and you just yeah. feel like, oh, how long, yeah. how long, how long, how long? Were you always looking for the next move when, or did you give yourself a time frame of I'm only going to be here for 18 months or anything like that? Or did you just go with it? Uh, it was actually the opposite. Most times I had a minimum because I was like, if I'm going to go there, I'm going to really do it properly. So the first job, I was like, I'm going to be here for a minimum of 18 months. So I'm going to really sink my teeth in. And then four or five months later, I got a phone call going, do you want to move? And I was like, absolutely, this place sucks. <laughs> so um, I never try to put a time limit on because, well, as you are probably learning as well, the one thing guaranteed in media is that there's nothing guaranteed. You just never quite know 
when a job's going to come up or not come up or someone else is going to... Because a lot of times the opportunities come from other people leaving and that's not something you can plan on or predict. So it's a bit dangerous. But Craig Bruce, who used to be head of our company, he just always said, you never know when your next opportunity is. Always be ready and always be informed and not ready in terms of your bags packed. But when a job comes up, the best thing you can do is go, hey, here's what I've done on the show this week. I'm ready for this next job. Whereas you can't, a job can't come up and you go, oh, shit, I haven't been doing much and I've been a bit lazy, but uh, all right, now I'll, now I'll make something good. It's like, well, you've probably already lost the job. What's funny about that though is that people look at people like you and they say, oh, you're so lucky. Fuck those guys. <laughs> it's not. It's being prepared when those doors open. You've got to be prepared to walk through the door. And if yeah. you've done the work, then there you are. It is not luck. And I, I will say that a thousand yeah. times yeah. over. It's not luck. People work really hard. Yeah, well, I think always I've always disregarded a resume. I used to think I want to have this great resume that says this experience, this degree, whatever, about what I've learned is it's about what you've made. So if you go for a job in content or media, they don't care what you've like what's on the piece of paper. They're like, show me the video. Let me listen to the audio. And if it's good, you're in in with a running in in for a chance. But if it's not, you're not. There's so many people who think they're so good and better than where they are, and they're not making great stuff. And then an opportunity comes up, and they don't get it. And like, this is bullshit. I've been here for two years. The guy who got it only been doing it for one year. That's bullshit. I've got double the experience. And you go, well, show me what you've done. Show me the work. And a lot of people have nothing to show. So yeah, yeah, just make it. A big part of your story. Yeah happened on mother's day last year yeah you shared a video talking about your adoption story and a message to your birth mother Mm -hmm. obviously a lot has happened since then which we'll run through shortly but what what was it that made you do a video for it i'd thought about it for a while because i think when i was in bunbury we had a bit of a brainstorming session where you know you, you want to build a radio show on people's passions and interests and experiences and you know, we were talking about I was adopted and they said, would you talk about it on the radio? It's probably quite interesting. And I thought, oh, yeah, maybe. And I don't, know, I don't think it would have been as good if I did it early just because I wasn't as good at telling the story, I guess. So I, I knew at one stage it'd be a great story to tell. I just didn't know how or where or why. I just thought it was easier to make a video because people could see it. It's quite a, I guess, an emotional piece and it makes a big difference when you can see someone's eyes talking about something they care about versus just hearing it on the radio. It was a huge week of radio. That's the thing. Very rarely does a radio break that's not filmed take off, whereas when there's vision, it's a lot easier for websites and and places to share it. And I thought if it's on video, then I can write it. I don't have to cut it short because we need to get to the ads. You know, I can just do it, edit it, make it right and do it And give it the time that it deserves too. Oh, it's one of those things, you know you're onto something good when you're scared of it and I know I'm scared of something if I keep putting it off. So I was like, oh, next weekend I've got some spare time so I'll write a bit of a script and I just put it off and put it off. But then we filmed it probably a month before Mother's Day and it just sat there like on my computer <laughs> and I show, and I was like, oh, I'm not too sure and I feel dumb for saying this but you're like, it, as a guy, you're like, oh, you know, do I want to be you know, crying about my mum? Like I'm supposed to be a man. Like men don't cry about their mum. This is embarrassing. So it sort of sat there for a while and I showed a few people and just kind of like, oh, do you think I should edit it a bit shorter? And they would just come back sort of almost in tears and be like, oh, yeah, I, I don't know. And, I'm, and I'd, it's weird because you, you film it and you edit it and you've seen it so many times it almost loses meaning to you. You forget how powerful it is. So that was strange. But then finally I got the balls to click publish and off it went. 
And off it went, it did. It yeah. was shared <laughs> millions and millions and millions of times yep. right across the world. Yep. What do you think it is that people have connected with it so much? Well, what I didn't know is that adoption is way more common than people think. So I'd never, ever met anyone that was adopted before. So I was like, oh, I've got a bit of a different story, but that's just me. Like everyone's got their story. And most people assume that adoption is like a bad thing. They're like, oh, how did you find out? Do you feel abandoned? And I'm always like, no, not really. Like I just grew up knowing and it's not a big deal. And I think, and I now know there's tens of thousands of people who felt exactly like me and were probably having these same chats with their friends going, oh, that's not actually a big deal. No one really cares. So the reason it was shared, it was literally other adoptees like me sharing it to their friends being like here's this thing i couldn't explain (laughs) here's this guy explaining exactly how i feel and that was the weird thing for me i thought oh some of my friends and family might be like oh that's interesting and a bit endearing but i didn't think people that didn't know me would care and obviously i was wrong about that (laughs) because a it's a very common story and b i just think any any mother i've just got messages from mothers being like as a mother this is unbelievable and a lot of people make decisions to place children into adoption some think about it, then don't. So anyone who ever had that thought watches that and it, it sort of hits them pretty hard. Mm. Like you said, there is plenty of different stories and um, people find out at, at lots of different ages and yep. there's so many different situations for why things are done. Yeah. What age were you told? I was never told. Like this is the t- like you just grow up knowing. So you just grow up knowing, yeah. And this dad messaged me, his daughter is three and he adopted her when she was four or five weeks old or something. And he, a part of the bedtime story, says it every night. And he said, she's probably too young to know, but if we just keep saying it, it'll just become normal. So there's no big reveal. And 98% of adoptions are the same. It's just Hollywood. They show the birth certificate comes out at the 16th birthday and it's like, (gasps) this guy knocks on the door, you're not my real dad. And like I said, 98% of the time, it's just very normal. It's part of the conversation. It's almost a joke in our family. Like when mum does something dumb, I'm like, ha, that's how I know I'm adopted. You're an idiot. And everyone just laughs and it's just, you know, part of our family story. Yeah. That's a nice a nice way to be. And yeah, it's good. There's a lot of misconceptions from people yeah. that are, are not involved in, in that sort of scenario. Yeah. Well, I think if there wasn't misconceptions, the video wouldn't have been that big. It was the fact that it, for what me seems a very normal story, is just not a commonly told story out loud. So that kind of broke down a lot of, oh, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a great thing. My mum and dad were told biologically, you cannot be parents. And now they are. So that's a win for them. It's a win for me because I get to grow up in a happy family. And it's a win for my birth mum because she's in a tough situation and she has an option that creates a lot of winners and she can move on with her life, which she did. And uh, like I said, there's no real losers in the story. The video eventually led to you finding your birth father. Yep. And I'm just going to read out something that he wrote uh, to you. He said, yep. so he obviously lived over, uh, overseas, yeah. overseas. He offered to pay for your, fi- for your flights and to fly your family over. And he said, we can spend the festive season together as this truly is a Christmas miracle. Yeah. How beautiful is that? It's crazy. Right? It was this time last year. Yeah, it was unbelievable because... I sent him a letter, like a written letter, and I a didn't know if I'd get a response, and then b I thought, oh, if I do get a response, it might just be a, oh yeah, it sounds like it could be me, because he had no idea I existed. It, I was expecting a, yeah, it sounds like it could have been me. Like, what do you want? Like, can I, you know, can I help you? Like, what? Uh, and that was probably within his rights to go look. I've got my own family now. Like, if I can help you or something, I will. But 
But he was just like, yep, welcome to the family. Um, we'll fly your mum over, fly Bridget over, come over for Christmas, come meet your half-brothers and my wife. And so we flew over to London. I didn't let him pay for any of it because I, uh, you kind of hear a lot of stories that people, like I've said, they, they want something. And I didn't realize at the time that he's like done quite well for himself. So the last thing I wanted is some guy that's made himself a lot of money and for it to feel like some guy on the other side of the world is just like, oh, here's my chance to get in Look on that inheritance. <laughs> yeah, like, where's my slice? So yeah, I yeah. said, oh, thanks for the offer, but you know, we'll, we'll fly ourselves over and, and, and meet him. And um, yeah, we met last Christmas and spent Christmas and New Year's together and incredible. I, spoke, I still speak to him pretty regularly now. What was that moment like? knocking on the door, waiting for somebody to answer? Terrifying. <laughs> um, but it was also, in the nicest way possible, very underwhelming. So we met you know, at the doorstep and we went to a cafe around the corner and if you had have seen us in the cafe, you would just assume it was two mates who'd known each other for years just catching up. I guess because he didn't know I existed, it was just like, oh, what a wonderful surprise. Whereas with the birth mother, she knows I exist and there'd be 30 years of what's this moment going to be like? What's going to happen? So there was no kind of build up. There was just how cool is this? And he was like, this is so cool. I had no idea. Like I said, we got along really well. I'm a bit older than his kids. So we were almost, even though he's my biological father, it was almost like we were more friends than that kind of generation gap. He was only 23 when I was conceived, I think so. Um, and we're both, he works in finance and I studied finance. So, you know, we're just chatting, making jokes about Bitcoin, talking about houses, talking about the family. And um, it would have seemed very normal if anyone else was just observing us. Yeah. As part of it, as you mentioned, you have two half siblings. Yep. What What was that like getting your head around the fact that like, wow, I have got people who perhaps look like me. Yep. I've got brothers. Yeah, it was crazy because I obviously grew up an only child and Everyone, have you got brothers and sisters? I've got a sister, yeah. Yeah, is she yeah. older or younger? She's younger and I um, I had step-siblings as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's it's great to grow up with yeah. siblings, I think. But it's just, and I guess even with your folks and the sister, it, it's very normal for everyone to be like, yeah, they kind of look like me, like it's my sister, like we've got the same nose, whatever. But I'd never had anything like that before. So for me, it was what's very normal to other people was very weird for me and that's when we knew it was real because Joel, my birth father, he doesn't look that much like me. And so this lady who was doing the research goes, oh, we think we found your birth father. Here's a photo. And we're kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, could be right, I guess. And they're like, here's, um, here's Cooper, one of the, his sons. And as soon as we saw Cooper, like my girlfriend Bridget nearly fell off her chair. We look exactly the same. And that was just like, it was like looking in the mirror. I was like, oh, and it gives me the shivers. And then when we we're in, a, in London, we went to a few pubs and bars and stuff and I'd catch a glimpse of Cooper when he's sort of facing the bar, like kind of looking away. And it was like I was looking at an old photo of myself, like just a few different angles or whatnot. And it still would give me shivers that he looks so much like me. It's not a a common thing, like you said earlier, for people to go through. So what you're going through, like realizing that I've got this completely new family and you're on the other side of the world Mm -hmm. meeting somebody who is responsible for for why you're here (laughs) for the first time for a lot of people, that would probably be quite overwhelming. I know you said the experience yeah. was underwhelming. Oh, just the, the actual meeting was just sort of like, oh, this is cool. It wasn't like big tears and yeah, you know, yeah. drawing out hugs and stuff. But the experience overall is very overwhelming because you're just not expecting it. And the lady who found him with the DNA test I did, 
she was so blasé. She was like, she sent me a text and go, oh, I think this is your half brother. And I was like, what the, what the hell are you joking? Can I call you? And she's like, oh, it's a bit late over here in the US. Maybe give me a call on Wednesday. And I was like, what are you making? <laughs> like, I waited 30 years and never met anyone. I'm not waiting till Wednesday. I don't care what time it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, but it was very pleasant. I think it'd be more overwhelming if you found out some bad story or, you know, the, the reason they left you was because they were fucked on drugs. Or like, there's probably a lot of bad stories out there that would make it a bit, you come back with a broken heart sort of thing. But I just came back being like, whoa, I used to have a small family. Now i got a big one. <laughs> That's just how it is. Yeah. What I think is really nice about your story too is that your adoptive mother was so involved in the process yeah. and, and obviously your family. What were those conversations like initially before you'd sort of found your birth father? Yeah. Did you express to your parents that you really wanted to start looking or was that talked about throughout your childhood? Yeah, before I did the birth mother video, I spoke to mum and dad about it and then I did it sort of a follow-up with mum. I kind of interviewed her about what it was like when she adopted me and, and stuff like that. So, again, this is weird, but I did that interview with her before I released the first one. So we didn't know what was going to happen. We just spoke to her, each other and was pretty honest about a few things that I never really told her and, and I didn't realize a lot of this just how hard it was for them to adopt my mum and dad were trying for 12 years which I guess you grow up and you go oh they were trying for a while and then they adopted me cool but when you actually think geez 12 years of trying for a kid is like a really long time and now that Bridget and I are trying for children you kind of go shit we've been trying for 18 months and we're like this is the hardest thing ever <laughs> and then when you hear 12 years it just really puts it into perspective so it's definitely brought us closer together and then when I told mum, she was thrilled. Grandma was drinking champagne at 10 a.m. She was like so happy. It was unbelievable. And I even said to mum, I'm like, you don't have to come to London if, if this is the thing I need to do by myself. Like I'll understand if it's a bit awkward for you. And she was like, what do you mean awkward for me? It's ridiculous. I found us a hotel and I found this great pub on the corner and we should all go here. And she just loved it. And now she and my biological father's wife, they're like pen pals. They're emailing each other recipes and like sharing restaurant reviews and their friends. So she was awesome. And then dad was pretty similar he was more not i'd say excited but just curious he's like what you didn't answer your dna test and just like what <laughs> um so he was a bit curious about it all and he's in melbourne but i flew from perth to melbourne to have lunch with dad and was just be like you're still my dad you know you raised me like nothing that's not going to change and you know like we're like two guys that don't you know talk about our feelings so it was a lot of yeah yeah of course yeah yeah of course yeah mate yeah 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 of course of course but i i think even though we both knew that it was just uh, it was important that it was sort of said out loud and so that was almost like, on the record on the record <laughs> yeah and um so that was great and then i got back and showed dad the photos and i said well, you'll never guess it and my birth father has a dodgy shoulder and so do i and that's where that's from and he just laughed and said thank god you can't blame me for that <laughs> so um but yeah it's all all been pretty good now it's just hectic trying to find time to visit everyone especially from the <laughs> other side of the world that of yeah. course makes things difficult but yeah. the internet is great and yeah we skype and communication that way yeah i think i'm gonna do thanksgiving next year in new orleans because as well as the half brothers and the biological father i've also now got 14 cousins like 36 second cut like there's a they're a massive massive clan and for them they're like holy shit this is so cool when can we meet him and i'm like oh well, I live in Perth, so uh, not soon. But, um, yeah, I'm going to go meet the whole full clan next year, I think. Things like this, it's more than just meeting your family too, isn't it? Because what about then, like, when you go to the doctor and now 
have you had some of your questions answered, you know, when they say, oh, what's your family's medical history and that sort of thing? Has that been helpful? Well, I got to tell the story to a doctor a few months ago. And it was the first time I've ever been to the doctor and could answer that question. <laughs> um, and that's another thing people don't take for granted is every time you go to the doctor, they go, oh, any family history of this? And you go, no. Nah, and they go, cool, no worries at all. But I've been to the doctor a few times. I had like a, a slightly irregular heartbeat. And they say, it's 99.9%, not a big deal as long as you don't have a history of this in your family. And then most people go, I don't have that. And then they tick it off and you're fine. But you kind of leave the doctor, first of all, having to sheepishly explain that you don't know the answer and why. And then you kind of leave going, well, I'm probably fine. But then, I mean, maybe I'm not. <laughs> so exactly. It's weird. So when we were over there, like I said, Bridget and I were planning to have children soon. So we kind of said, oh, by the way, like, is there anything I need to know? Is there something in our family? And Joel just said, no, I don't think so. We're all pretty fine. So, And that was it. But yeah, when a doctor asked me about medical history a few months ago, and I was like, this is the first time I can answer this. I have an answer. <laughs> uh, you spoke earlier this year about tracking down your original birth certificate. Yep. Obviously, that's a, a step closer to finding your birth mum. Yep. You've also spoken about, though, her being a little bit different in that she may not want to actually be found. Yeah. How have you dealt with that? Well, I now know since going to birth, deaths and marriages that she is remarried and I also found out that she's still alive because I went to the office and I was a bit nervous about that because you, you just you just don't know. Um, and But since finding out she was remarried, I was a little bit more like, oh, she might have her new life now. And again, if she's remarried, she might, might be happy and I don't want to disturb that. And I guess it's different with the birth father because, you know, my birth mother you know, physically carried me for nine months. You had to make a lot of decisions on my behalf. Whereas when you don't have any decisions to make, it's quite easy to be a birth father 30 years later and just go, oh, how cool is this? <laughs> that um, was a, a good night that ended, yeah, <laughs> ended uh, in this. Yeah, but um, obviously it's a lot different for her because you could only imagine this kind of emotional turmoil, I guess, and coming to that decision. And I've read letters from her about her explaining her decision and, and stuff. But um, yeah, I, I know my birth name now, like my first name and last name, and I know her new name. So I've got a lot more ingredients if I want to go and find her. But again, you you know, if she's got kids of her own, the husband might not know about me. Or it, I always assumed that she would have like placed me into adoption and then just sort of in the nicest way possible, just forgotten about me and moved on. But I've since spoken to hundreds of birth mums that were just like, you never forget. And when I think about it, you're like, well, of course you wouldn't. <laughs> but I guess I was a bit ignorance is bliss. So I'm still not quite sure what to do with that information. Although my original name is the name of one of my heroes. <laughs> so I've got the same name as them. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's pretty random, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, John was my, f that's why I'm Ryan John, because she named me John. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. You're obviously trying for children yep. uh, with Bridget. How has this experience, do you think, going to change the way that you parent? I don't know. I just know I appreciate the, I guess, the process of conceiving <laughs> a lot more. And then, like I said, when mum was trying for 12 years, she did IVF unsuccessfully a few times. And then even when she got approved to be an adoptive parent, two years went by before I was placed with them. So the process just seems unbelievable. So I think we'll just really appreciate, you know, if, if it happens, the kind of miracle of life. And I always used to think how cool it would be because it's different now but the baby would have been the first person who looked like me that would have been number number one <laughs> first person i ever met who has the same dna as me that's not the story anymore <laughs> but um you can imagine at the time when we were you know decided to have kids i was a bit like oh like this 
child is going to be the first person I've ever met that has the same blood and DNA as me. So that was kind of exciting as well. We said earlier that there was a lot of misconceptions out there. Yep. What do you think the biggest misconception the public has of adoptive parents? I think the misconception with the biological parents is that they gave them up and abandoned them because they didn't want them or didn't like them or didn't love them or didn't want them. But the reality is is that they look at their own circumstances financially, socially, where they live, what they can provide, what support they can give. And then they look at the alternative, which is another couple that might have a bit more money, live in a nicer area, have access to nicer schools and a bit more set up to be parents and think what is the best situation for this child. And so it's a very selfless thing. It's not going, I hate them, get rid of them. It's more going, they can get more out of life with someone else. So it's a very brave and selfless decision. And I think at least people on my Facebook page, they kind of go, oh, like that kind of makes sense when you think about it. Because my birth mum was single. She lived in a share house. She was working part-time and she was studying part-time. Like, does she then give up study so she can earn full-time hours and then we live in a share house with her? It just... It doesn't sound like the kind of environment you want a child to be raised in. Or she thought that there could be better for me and, and there was. So, yeah, I just think it's quite selfless. And for adoptive parents, I mean, they're just so so lucky. Mum and dad were one of 15 couples that got a child the year I was born and there was 2,000 couples who were applying. So 15 Amazing. out of 2,000. I said to mum, do you think it changes much? Like, did you care for me a bit more because you felt a bit of responsibility? And she was like, no, not really. <laughs> she said it was weird because I didn't look like her. Yeah. Like even though mum's white and I'm white and I don't know, all babies kind of look the same, don't they? I don't know. <laughs> but mum said that, it, you know, you don't have those chats of, oh, he's got your nose. Oh, you can tell with those eyes it's, you know, it's his fart. And uh, playing sport a lot, a lot of my friends like, oh, that's the parson's backhand just like his dad or that kind of thing. But I, I never had any of that. You are part of a, a breakfast team here in Perth. Yep. And obviously part of your story was covered on radio, but yep. uh, online as well. As we said, it was shared millions of times. Yeah. What was it like doing it so publicly? Because it, it's such a complex thing to be dealing with and yep. going through. And I can imagine with that added pressure, it might be a little bit different. Well, I guess it was quite nice at first because we had so many people calling through the radio show being like, oh, me too. And suddenly you go from, oh, I don't know anyone like me to, oh, there's people calling who are just like me. And then suddenly you check your inbox and you go, oh, I'm not special at all. There's tens of thousands of people that have exactly the same story. So it's kind of reassuring in that sense but it is quite overwhelming like going to bed one night and there's a couple of comments on your Facebook page and then you wake up in the morning and there's an extra 50,000 people there with 20,000 emails like that's a bit like oh god I feel like I should reply (laughs) Um, but yeah I don't know I just think every time you can share a story it everyone thinks they're unique but the more I learn is that there's always someone who's similar and so it's just opened up an opportunity for all those other people who thought they were alone as well to go oh no yeah same as me and yeah, I'm not that different after all. And I don't know, it's kind of nice to create a community and bring people together, I guess. Now, you are obviously part of the breakfast team. Yeah. Breakfast radio means early hours. Yeah. What's a standard day like for you on air? Get up at, well, alarm goes off at four, press snooze till like quarter past. <laughs> I um, leave home at 4.30. I live in Frio, so drive up to Subi, get in about five, read the papers on the online sites and edit some stuff show from six to nine like today i left early to come here which was good because it means i got to i left amy shark to come and see you oh yeah what <laughs> i said amy nice. I'd, I'd love to keep chatting but i have to go see tom and she says tom's talk to him i was like yeah yeah and she goes oh, okay um and but yeah sometimes i get home at 11 30 sometimes i get home at 6 30 
like tomorrow I'll go to the gym before work. So I'll go to the gym at 3.30, do the show, then go to Channel 9 and do a thing with them in the afternoon and then at night go and be part of this opening night for a wine show or something. So tomorrow will be a 3 a.m. till 9 p.m. sort of day. <laughs> so that'll be tough. And then it's so cliche to be like no two days are the same, but there's really no two days that are the same. And is that the best part of the job, that no two days are the same? Mm, I'm real strange because sometimes I go through phases where I, I like a routine and I know, yep, at 10 o'clock I've got an hour so I can sit down and write jokes and write ideas. And then at 11... I'll do this and I'll edit it and I like a bit of structure. And then other days, especially on my holidays, if I know I have to film something and go do a podcast, I love just having my backpack on and wandering around. And I had a week off. I think I was in Sydney when you were in Sydney, by the way. Oh, were you? Yeah, um, but I knew I had to get up and do an interview in the morning, then go to Channel 7 and do something for them and then catch the train up to this other place to do another podcast. And I just it was nice doing all these random stuff and just being by myself with the backpack and cruising around. So they're like obviously quite a contradiction, but... It's like it's the finance work coming out in you, I reckon. Yeah. You, that structure, that's yeah. um, that's why you, you were good at finance. A lot of people look at radio and telly, for that matter, and yeah. they just think, oh, you get to talk all day. How great. Yeah. But it is, I certainly know, it is so much more than just sitting in front of the microphone and talking. Yeah. What are some of the more difficult sort of aspects of your job and, and that sort of thing? Um, well, like we were talking about earlier, when I had a smaller team, just the relentlessness of I need another five ideas for tomorrow and then you do tomorrow's show and it's half past nine and you go shit I've got 20 hours and 30 minutes to think of three hours of fun stuff (laughs) and so that is obviously draining and you know it takes a lot of ideas and you got to really get into it and and think hard another hard thing that people don't realize is you're up in the morning when the show's on you're up and so you need to kind of chill out and come down (laughs) a little bit so I'll spend all morning being happy and loud and crazy and then I'm in an office full of young people and then by the time I get home, I don't really want to talk to anyone. And my partner, Bridget, is a winemaker, so she spends a lot of time by herself in a lab. So she spent all day by herself. So she gets home and she just is like, finally, I've got someone to talk to. <laughs> so she gets home and goes, oh, my God, can you believe this new client change science has come out and blah, 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 and in politics this has happened and this girl that works at the... And I'm just sitting there going, oh, I just... <laughs> I, I've been talking all day. I just cannot be <laughs> cannot be bothered uh, doing this. So that's sort of a weird scenario. It, yeah, yeah, it is weird. You feel like you've given so much of yourself to everyone else except for the people that yeah, you, actually matter, I suppose. Yeah, and even then, like, friends friends call and you go, like, I've been talking all day. I can't be fucked. <laughs> but then you kind of force yourself to because, like you said, it's strangely the, the people you love the most can sometimes get the least of you. And sometimes Bridget will hear stuff about me on the radio and go, oh, I didn't know you knew about that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I probably should have. I don't know. We never talked about it, but I don't know. I just needed to fill a gap at 6.55, so I just talked about it. I don't know. But, yeah, it's strange. Those things are weird sometimes. What's it been like working with different personalities? Because in normal jobs, Mm -hmm. you have to work with all sorts of people. Yeah. But it's not necessarily broadcast across the uh, the city. How, How has that been to, like, get chucked in with all sorts of different people and being told you've got three hours to fill and you have to make people like listening to you. Yeah. Is that a hard thing? Some places I've worked is really easy. Some it's really hard. Some of the greatest people I've ever met have been in radio, but I've also met some of the greatest fuckwits of all time. So that's just the nature of the biz. Um, I don't know. I think it's when you've got a bigger team, it's just really important to have a, you know, have a game plan and know what you want. 
you see AFL teams, there's a whole bunch of different personalities and some tall, some short, some fast, some slow, but they've got a coach and a leader who's like, yep, so here's our game plan and here's how we do it. And, you know, they bring everyone onto the same page. So I think the bigger you have a team, the more you really need to go, great. We've got lots of skills and experience and ideas, but this is what we're doing. And uh, it's hard when you don't do that because then, you know, someone's doing this game plan, someone's doing that, someone's a bit crazy about this, but the other person doesn't care about that. And, like, you can very easily get very murky. Looking back at your career, do you have any regrets? I don't know. Like, small things, maybe not regrets, but the reality of having lots of ideas and trying lots of things is they're not all going to work. So it'd be easy to sit back and go, oh, last Tuesday I did this idea and it didn't quite work, so I regret that. But the reality is if you get into the habit of, you just need to do them all. You just need to do every idea because that's how you find the diamond in the rough. If you be too critical and go, oh, I won't do that because it might not work and I might not do this because that might not work, then you no, you might miss the the good one. So uh, I regret not teaching myself how to edit video. I was talking about that before we started (laughs) recording. I think a lot of skills take a lot of time to master. So I thought, oh, I wish I had done it earlier. So I started radio when I was like 26 and I thought, oh, if I had started at uni when I was 18 or 19, you know, who knows where I'd be now. But uh, now I actually see people come out of radio school and they're 19 and they don't have a heap of life experience. So they don't really have a lot of stories to say you can be technically good but when we're talking about things that happen in an office i'm like well i worked in banking for years i've got stories about people i've used to work with in the office i've been traveling so when someone tells a travel story i can relate to it and stuff so i used to think oh i regret not getting into it early but now i'm like no i'm glad i've got some life experience and skills so that's a very long no (laughs) (laughs) No, that's (laughs) looking ahead uh and this will be the final question looking Mm -hmm. ahead to the next five years What are your goals or hopes professionally but also personally as well? Well, learning how to edit video. for <laughs> I've been putting that off for years, so it's finally time to get it. Unless someone knows how to do it really well and wants a job, then find me on Twitter and I'll give you a job. Yeah, Bridget and I are trying for a family, like trying to start a family. So that's sort of something we're looking forward to and sort of buying out. Have you heard the term like do you, people in your world use the term a forever home or do you get the concept? Because we've been moving around for so long. Yeah, and yeah. So you just want to, you want somewhere to be. This is our forever homes. Because a lot of times you will move in, we're renting somewhere and we're like, oh, it's just for 12 months because then we're moving somewhere else. And we bought a house in Canberra thinking we'd be there for a while. And then I got this job, so we had to move. So it'd be nice to go, this is our, not just a house, but this is going to be our home and we're going to have our baby in our home and, and you know, this live here forever. So It's like on Pat to the Rafters, yeah. Julie's home, and then the kids came back and they were like, that's my room, that's my room. I love that. Yeah, it's love, beautiful. Love, love that. Yeah, so we'd love to just create a little family home like that. So that's sort of personally what we'd like to do. And like I said, Bridget's a great winemaker, so uh, it's sort of hard. We've both got uncommon jobs, so it's not easy for us to just move and get jobs. You've got to be pretty lucky, so... That's why Perth is like the perfect spot for us. And then professionally, as well as learning how to edit video, <laughs> um, yeah, just hope the Heidi's Avon Ryan show goes well. And like I said, I'm, I'm enjoying making some stuff on the side and just making stuff you're proud of, I guess. So uh, whether it's a family story or fun stories, it's just I value and score myself on great content. It's not necessarily about ratings or the name of the station or the – I actually just like going, yep, here's five pieces of really great content I made this year and that's what I'll go to Christmas and be like, good year or bad year based on that. So making good stuff and learning how to edit video. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is very good. And yeah. it, I think it does all just come back to telling stories. And yeah. I always say, especially for this podcast, 
everyone has got a story. Yep. And the story that they have, you know, you might look at someone and you might not realize their story. Mm-hmm. And then I think like what you're doing on the side and, and having your own sort of thing, it's great that because everyone loves a story it's and true. everyone has a story. So it's good if we can share heaps of them. Can I share an awesome story right now? Absolutely. When I went to park here at EC, are we allowed to say we're recording at ECU? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. When I parked here at ECU, this girl was leaving and I went to buy a ticket for parking and she said, how long are you going to be? I was like, oh, not long. And so she's like, do you want my ticket? Oh, Is that not the best thing ever when that happens? How great. Yeah. Amazing. And you know what? Good karma. Let's hope that that happens to her. <laughs> <laughs> how good. That's great for yeah. you too. I was, do you think that's thievery though? Because I'm here on no one else's dime. Like mm. I've robbed ECU of how much does it cost to park here a lot? It's just a permit that I've got. But oh, okay, I, yeah. I don't know how much visitor parking is. Probably yeah. expensive. Well, by the look at these studios, they got enough money to burn. So fuck those guys. They're not getting my three dollars <laughs> yeah, today. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, that's nice, Ryan. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I think you are great. You're doing amazing things professionally, but also personally. I think. You've made such an impact and you've made people understand a lot of stories. So that's great. Cool. Well, thanks for having me on. Hope I haven't waffled too much. (laughs) Never enough waffling. (laughs) 